have a Bible with you, you can grab one of those Black Pew Bibles that are right in front of you and turn in your Bibles because you're going to want to keep it open to follow along as we have a short three verses, but a difficult three verses to work through this morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. In order to get to know somebody, you usually begin by getting to know their name. Uh, Now, some names aren't vested with too much meaning. Some parents don't give a ton of thought as to what they name their children. Uh, Sometimes it's just they want to make sure that it's original, uh, it's not too weird, won't get made fun of, Uh, so they'll name their children daughter something like juniper or like zelda or something like that and really the meaning doesn't matter but many parents agonize over their children's names they want to make sure all their children's names are not only unique or that they're alphabetical or that they're all start with the same letter or that they're even biblical But what they name their child encapsulates the hopes and dreams they have for their children. So I have four children. And one has the middle name Owen, after the Puritan John Owen. Because we hope that he'll want to mortify his sins and love studying God's word. One's Haddon, after Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the preacher. Because we hope that he'll cherish the gospel and desire to share it with others. One is Taylor after missionary Hudson Taylor. Because we hope she'll have a heart for the nations. And the last has the middle name Piper. After Pastor John Piper. Not only because we hope she'll want to see God most glorified when I'm most satisfied in him or anything like that but also because we hope she will see and know the joy of adoption into the family of God. In other words, Shirley and I have tried to give our children names that will be their destinies and their character. Many of you are the same. It's the reason why you're named after your father or you're named after your grandfather. It's the reason why you have been given a 
biblical name, perhaps. And yet there's a big difference, however, between the way we name something and when God names something. When we name someone, we don't have any authority, we don't have any power to make the person fit the name. I mean, we can teach and we can hope and we can pray, but we can't make it happen. But when God names something, it happens. When God names Abram and says, you're not Abram, you're Abraham. Sarah to Sarah, or Jacob to Israel. And when the Son of God came into this world, his name was not left to chance. Matthew one twenty one, you shall call his name Jesus, salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. And this morning in our passage, God reveals his own name. The most common and most important name, which is actually never even translated in your Bibles. Even though it appears nearly 6,000 times in the Hebrew Bible. And when God reveals his name, we may be sure that the name is packed with who he is, packed with meaning, packed with character, packed with what he intends to do. One pastor writes, he chooses names for the sake of revealing things about himself that will deepen our love for him and enlarge our admiration and strengthen our faith. Understanding God's name is crucial for the Christian and the non-Christian because it tells us who we is, who he is, and why we should trust him. Psalm 9 puts it this way, Those who know your name put their trust in you. Or Psalm 124 says, our help is in the name of the Lord. We've seen in the book of Exodus that names are really important. It's why the book of Exodus begins with what? These are the names. That's the very first verse. And it's why Shifra and Pua, they are named, but Pharaoh is not. It's why Moses has a name, not only describing how he was taken out of the water, but what his destiny will be. And ultimately, Exodus is about revealing God's name. That is the main theme of the book. It is revealing who he is and making his name known. Theologian Ross Blackburn writes, The meaning of the name is perhaps the primary burden of the book of Exodus as a whole. So perhaps in one of the most monumental and foundational verses in all of the Bible, we are introduced this morning to the name of God. So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. We're just going to look at these three verses, and you'll recall that Moses, after a failed attempt to lead an uprising of the Hebrew people against the Egyptians, has hidden out in the land of Midian. He's washed up. He's, he's 80 years old. And he encounters, as we saw last week, the burning bush. A fire that burns and burns around this bush, but the bush is never consumed. And the fire is never put out. And God speaks to Moses and says, out of the bush, I'm ready to deliver my people. And Moses, I'm sending you. And Moses says, what? 
You're sending me? Who am I? That's what he asks. I'm washed up. I have no physical strength left. I have no political clout left. I'm a nobody. He says, who am I? And God says to him, but I will be with you. And so now he switches gears a little bit, which brings us to verse 13, which he asks, who are you? He says, who are you? Look at verse 13. Moses says, if I come to the people of Israel and say, and, ask, and say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? You can kind of see Moses, the, the wheels in Moses' head kind of turning, can't you? Like, if I go, like, hypothetically speaking, God, you know, let's just say for argument's sake, let's say that I do go if they ask, which actually they never do. What is his name? What shall I say? Now, why is Moses asking this question? What an odd question to ask. Doesn't he already know the name? I think the reason why Moses asked the question is because they have forgotten the name of God. Now, it's not that the name was not used. The divine name of God is used in Genesis and throughout Genesis. That divine name, Lord, in in all caps, L-O-R-D, is used all over the place. But turn with me really briefly to Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. Maybe just two pages over, or one, for some of you. Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. What does the Lord say? He says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, I think what this verse tells us is that what is new is not the name itself, but an interpretation of the name, of the divine name. You may, have not, you may not have noticed, but all throughout Exodus thus far, his name is never mentioned. And we see... We know that the people of God have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They don't know the name of God as it should be known. And Calvin writes, It will not be far from the truth if we suppose that the faith both of Moses and the Israelites had grown somewhat faint and rusty, like a church that still has the embers of the truth, but they have forgotten their first love. So this is why Moses asks for the name. He's... He, he can't very well go back to Egypt and say to the people, well, you see, I was out shepherding one day, and then this burning bush was speaking to me. I mean, it sounds like the beginning of a joke, right? He asked for God's name because he wants to know what sort of God he is. And God essentially gives him three answers. Do you notice that in verses 14 and 15? God says, and then God says again, And then God says, one more time. And I think these three answers are building up on top of one another, trying to describe the different contours of what his name means, or his character and his nature. So first, God speaks to Moses and declares that he is the God who is there. That he is the God who is there. God says to Moses, I am who I am. Now, what kind of answer is that? 
I was reading it last night with my children, and my, my son couldn't help but laugh when he came to that answer. I mean, can you imagine? Put yourself into those days of Jane Austen when there used to be, you know, butlers at the door, at these English butlers. And can you imagine you knocking on the door, and then the butler opens the door, and then he says, oh, who shall I say is calling? You know, you know, I don't know, whatever voice that it sounds like. And you say, I am who I am. Well, the butler would just shut the door in your face because it's a nonsense answer. It seems like nonsense. If you were Moses, perhaps you would think the same thing. You say, I am who I am. Come on, God, you got to do better that, than that. Is that all you have? Give me some Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of the hosts and armies. Give me El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. Give me something like that. But he says, I am who I am. Now, let me warn you, there is a staggering amount of literature on just this phrase. One uh, commentator writes, a revision of Ecclesiastes 12.12 might read, of the writing of articles, monographs, essays, and dissertations on Exodus 3.14, there is no end. And so some scholars conclude that God is just being deliberately vague and evasive. As if God is saying, don't try to pry too closely to who I am to figure me out. But that is not what's happening. There's no sense in which God is rebuking Moses for his answer. And let me just say that one of the reasons why this, these few words are so difficult to understand is because tr- translating it is very difficult. Now, let's have a little Hebrew lesson this morning. And that word for I am comes from the root word in Hebrew of haya. Now, there's ambiguity here because haya here, translated as I am, can also be translated as I was or I will be. And then so how do you translate it? Is it translated I am who I am or I am who I was or I am who I will be? Or you go through all the different nine permutations that are possible. And then you add to that translation, depending on how you think of the stem of the word, you know, is it I cause to be? Of all the variations possible, I do think our current translation in the ESV, I am who I am, is a good one. And perhaps the best way to cut through some of the translation problems is to look at the surrounding context. When you read the Bible, you sometimes realize that God does two things at the same time. There is an event, and then there is a word. There's something that God does, and there's something that God says, and they help interpret one another. And in the context of these words, God's appearance is that of a burning bush. And I think the picture of a burning bush helps us to understand what he is saying. The picture of the burning bush is that there is a fire amidst this bush, surrounds this bush. And yet the bush is not burned. I think this is a picture of God abiding with his people and yet not destroying them, like the pillar of fire at night later on in Exodus. So when God says, I am who I am, I think he is reiterating to Moses, I will be with you. Now, I think that's confirmed when we look at verse 12. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 12, Moses says, who am I? And God answers, but I will be with you. 
Now, that verb, the verb form of I am that we have is the same in verse 12. That word, I will be, is the same as I am. So verse 12 and 14, same verb. So I don't think God is simply saying, Moses, I exist. Because that's not really encouraging for Moses. I think he's saying, I am active and I am committed to being with you. To being in your presence to help you. What God communicates is that he is a God who will always show up. He is a God who is always there. He is never too tired. He is never too busy. God says, Moses, I know you're worried. I know you're frightened. You've screwed up in the past. You've failed before. But guess what? What you need now is assurance. What you need now is to know that the I am who sends you is the I am who will be there. I will be with you. I used to think that was a pretty lame prayer. When people would pray, oh Lord, Pastor Steve is having a hard time. He's not sure what the future holds and he's, you know, feeling melancholy on Monday and he's worried about what's going to happen in the future. And will you just be with him? And when I would hear that prayer, I would think, first off, don't say just. It's just a filler word in your prayer and it trivializes what you're saying to God. And second, is that all you got? Be with him? Just be with him? Couldn't you say give him joy? Help him to trust in your promises? Help him to see Jesus? Cause him to repent? Give him wisdom? Now right now I know you think, Steve, you're a prayer snob. <laughs> and I am. But there is a way to be careless and thoughtless in our words and just throw out, oh, be with him. But if you have this understanding, there are a few better things to pray. God is a relational God, relational to his people. And there's nothing more important than to say, God, they're scared, they're hurt, they're sinning, they're unrepentant, they're struggling, they're wandering. Would you draw near to them? Would you show yourself to be a God who is with them, the God who is there? Beloved, you who are in Christ, you have trusted in Jesus, Emmanuel. The good news is that I am is with you. His presence, though a fire, is not there to consume you, but to keep you. Second, in God's response, God not only offers a relational statement, but this almost philosophical, theological statement answer too. Not only is he the God who is there, but second, he is a God who is self-existent. Now you see this in the second half of verse 14. God now authorizes Moses to tell the people of Israel, go tell them, I am has sent me to you. And so the divine name is not just for Moses, but it's for all the people of Israel as well. And notice in the second answer, there's a shortening of the name. Not I am who I am, but just I am. Again, I think God is building out his name, providing contours to his character and nature. Here we think, I think what we see is the isness of God. In every place, at every point in time, in every circumstance or need, God is. 
Again, the action of the burning bush helps us understand what God says. There is a fire and there is a bush, but the fire is not dependent on the bush. There is a fire independent of any energy the bush is providing. In other words, God is presenting himself here as the self-existent, transcendent, independent God of the universe. It is what theologians call the aseity of God, meaning that God exists in himself. He does not need to go outside of himself to find his existence or his purpose or his meaning. He does not owe his being or attributes to anyone else. Rather, the whole, it's the other way around for creation. Everything we know depends on something else for its existence. Everything that will ever be depends on something else for its existence. We are all dependent creatures. This is why a six-year-old child will ask, Daddy, who made God? Why? Because everything she sees has been made. But not so with God. God simply is. Puritan Matthew Henry observed, the greatest and best man in the world must say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But God says, absolutely, I am. So push back with me in your imagination before there was any people on earth. In your mind's eye. Push back even further before there existed an earth and stars and galaxies and universes. Push back to a time before creation and where there was God. There's only God and there's nothing. Now push back further behind God. Where did he come from? What, how did he get to be the way he is? What, what influenced him? How, did he, how, how is he who he is? But when we ask God how he got to be the way he is, all he will say is, I am. Nobody no power brought me into existence. I had no beginning. There is no reality outside of myself that did not come from me. And so there is no force. There is no influence. There is no power over me except what comes from me. There is no reality behind me. That's what God would say. Theologian Wayne Gruden says the difference between God's being and ours is more than a difference between the ocean and a raindrop, raindrop or the difference between a sun and a candle. God's being is qualitatively different. Augustine writes, if you can fully understand him, it's not God you're understanding. And yet this has to be an incredible encouragement for Israel. In saying, I am has sent me to you, God was telling them, I'm not one of the Egyptian gods. I'm not a god that can, control, that can be controlled or manipulated. I'm not unconcerned. I'm not unmoved by suffering. I am not weak or helpless. I'm not small. I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to let you down. I am. Is this the god that you worship? Is this the God that you tell other people about? Is this the kind of God that you pray to? It's been said God created man in his, in his own image. 
And ever since, we've been returning the favor by creating him in ours. You see, when we get to this passage and we get to, when he says, I am, we usually just start thinking, oh, I understand what that means. That means, well, I am and I am whoever you want me to be. I want a God who coincides with my political views. I, I am a God who will, coincide, who will coincide with, you know, your social justice views. I want a God who accepts everyone. I want a God who will allow me to hold on to my view on gender or sexuality. But God says, I am. I reveal who I am. I define who I am. And I'll only be taken on my terms. Third and last, God reveals his name not only that he is the God who is there, the God who is self-existent, but that he is the God who is everlasting. Look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, when you look at what is said in verse 15, that very first sentence, you'll see that it is parallel to what came earlier in verse 14. So this first sentence is parallel. Say this to the people of Israel, name of God has sent me to you. Right? So God is revealing further about his name. And his name is the Lord further defined as the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, everything you see in these three verses, this, or in these two verses this morning, is based off of, and everything that you see there that has that all caps, that kind of small all caps, comes from the Hebrew word, that Hebrew verb, haya, to be. They're all tied together. But here in verse 15, it is translated because it's, it's conjugated differently, but it's translated as the Lord. This is the divine name of God that you see all over the Bible. It is what is known as the tetragrammaton, the four-lettered name of God, because in Hebrew, it is Y-H-W-H, Y-H-W-H, or as we would say, Yahweh. Now, some of you might wonder, well, why is it in my Bible, this capital L-O-R-D, why not just translate it Yahweh? Or just put Y-H-W-H. And the reason most translators of the Bible do that is because there's a long history of translating the divine name as Lord. It goes back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It goes back to a long-standing tradition among Jews who would not want to say the divine name Yahweh because they were, they were afraid that they might accidentally use the Lord's name in vain. So every time they come across the Hebrew text and it would say Y-H-W-H, they would basically say Adonai. They would replace it with the word Lord. Even in seminary, we, we would uh, be in Hebrew class and we actually had a... Um, we would, when we would read our Hebrew Bibles out loud, we would say Adonai, Adonai, in place of Yahweh. And it's because our Hebrew professor had befriended 
a, a man of a Jewish background who was very interested in Hebrew. His wife was a, is a Hebrew uh, 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 priest, and so, she, so he, he would come to class with us, and just out of not going against his conscience in class, we had the, we had the habit of substituting Adonai or Lord for Yahweh. But what I want you to see from this passage is that the name is a further explanation and description that God is everlasting. Again, Moses was called to this burning bush, a fire that was burning and burning, but never burning out. And so when God says, I am, he declares, I will never burn out. I do not change. I am from everlasting to everlasting because the only people who change are people who can't foresee the circumstances or they have weakness of will, and yet God has neither. He knows all circumstances, and he is never weak. And he's unchanging. He's everlasting. And so he is the same covenant-keeping God as he was to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his name is to be forever. For all generations, throughout all generations, God is everlasting. He is radiant with inexhaustible power. He doesn't need a backup system. He doesn't need to ever unplug or he never needs to be plugged in. You know, he never shuts down. He doesn't grow faint or weary. He is an unending river of life and the source of strength every morning, every morning. It is in his name that we can place our trust. He is and therefore will always be with us. He is self-sufficient and therefore is sufficient for us. He possesses fullness of being in himself. Therefore, he never lacks any resources to give to us. He is utterly faithful, everlastingly consistent, He has been in the past and he will be in the future. This is what these verses tell us. And even as we wrap up this morning, we understand that God has not given his name in such a way that has exhausted its meaning. Some of us are probably still left with, oh, there's got to be even more. And there is. Because all of Exodus keeps telling us his name. And, this, and, and fleshing out what his name is until finally at the very end in Exodus 34, in the last chapter, he says, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And even then, His name is not fully revealed and understood. It must be filled out through the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament. And this infinite, absolute, self-determining God, his name finds ultimate fulfillment thousands of years later in the name, you can say it with me, Jesus. Because Jesus, when he stands before the religious leaders of his day in John 8, 58, says, Before Abraham was, what does he say? I am. Everyone knew what he was saying. He left no doubt to what he was saying because those religious leaders were ready to pick up stones and throw them at him for saying such a thing. The burning bush, I am Yahweh, 
the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the self-existent one with no beginning and no end, everlasting to everlasting, you can also call his, him Jesus, for that is his name. And in his great love, the I am, the great I am, became a man. This tells us something, doesn't it? About the depths of our depravity, that he would have to become a man. He set aside his crown to bear the dreadful curse for our souls. He lived the life that we should have lived and died. The self-existent God died in the place of sinners as a substitute, as my substitute. And he rose so that all who would trust in his name would be free from an eternity of wrath and damnation and be united with him, together with him, forever. And there is no other name, no other name under by which we must be saved. And so I must ask all of us this morning, have you responded to the name of Jesus? Do you still respond to the name of Jesus? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there is much mystery here as we are contemplating these couple of verses Everything we need to know about you has been revealed in Scripture. And yet we know that Scripture cannot fully reveal everything about you. For you are infinite, everlasting. And yet you draw near to us. Father, we pray that our response would be that of worship to the wondrous love that you have displayed to us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.